this is The Courageous Mama. Welcome. How's your week going? This week, I found that being at the dinner table without an urban dictionary is proving increasingly difficult around teenagers. I love the way the English language evolves, but I can't always keep up with our 18-year-old. So rago means annoyed, bear means very, so bear rago, presumably very annoyed. <laughs> Lenghead means nice. Pass me one of those, please, has turned into dash me one of those. Michavi is a term of endearment now. I think that was an insult a few years ago. Peng means nice. Piff means very nice. Leng means very, very nice. And just for clarity, piff is equal to peng peng and leng is equal to piff piff. That's cap means that's not true. I call cap another way of saying no way. Tearing, doing bear well. You're getting it now. So the other night he was telling us that he'd got a detention and like all detentions, it was pure injustice. So we empathised and we heard the story and then I asked whether it was worth him chatting to the teacher in question. I tried that, he said, but it didn't work. What did you say? I inquired. I said, that's bear done out, bruv. Maybe, said our 11-year-old, she couldn't understand what you were saying. This week, we're going to look at some questions that you've sent me. When I do a seminar or a course, we always have a Q&A time at the end and it's a great time to look at some real life scenarios. So I get emails and messages from some of you and just to say, I love that. I was speaking to someone the other day and she said, oh, by the way, I've been listening to your podcast and went on to say what she had found valuable and that really makes my day. Anyway, as I was saying, I get emails and I get messages on the blog and they have questions. And if I end up having a chat with that person, I'll often ask, would you mind if I shared that on the podcast? No names used. And so these are questions from those who have given me permission to do that. And this is the first one. My son's at a school where they have a star system and they start with five stars and stars get taken away if the behaviour isn't great. And each day when I pick my son up at the end of the day, I ask him how many stars he has left. And I've noticed that recently he hasn't always been honest with me about how many he has left. So she'd had conversations with the school and, and found that they didn't correlate. And she went on to say, I think it's because I worry a bit when he has them taken away. And then I ask him what happened. And it's become a bit of a sticking point. How can I know what's going on if he won't tell me the truth? Good question. Well, I sometimes find it helps to have some principles to hang things on. And so with this one, I would reference the principle, I manage me and you manage you. What message do you think the child is receiving from the parent? I think the hidden message he's probably getting is, my priority is to know how many stars you've got, or I want to know how good you've been today. Or I evaluate your day by knowing how many stars you've got. Or I worry about your star rating. Supporting our children in their behaviour is of course a part of parenting. But in this case, it's becoming a barrier to connection. When the child gets picked up in the evening, they want the parent's highest priority to be to want to be with them. To know how they are what their needs might be after a long day at school, to be in your presence, to see your face, your smiling, unjudging, comforting and unconditional welcome. And if that's not the case, in time, the child won't actually like being picked up by you. 
and they definitely won't like being rated at the end of the day. And if that child can see that the star score is affecting the parent's countenance, they will definitely be tempted to give you the answer that you want to hear rather than the truth. So I had a lovely chat with this mum and it enabled me to talk in a bit more detail and we talked about allowing him to manage himself. And I asked along the lines of, you know, does he have space to make choices when he gets home about when he does his homework or what he does with his free time? And this led to a realisation from the mum. She said that she's quite structured. She needs to be because she works, but that's led to quite a detailed timetable and so she had that moment of realization and she said I'm a control freak and I was able to assure her that actually we all are in our own ways it's just a case of how we respond to our desire to control everything that's the part to manage so we were able to talk about where the latitude can be where he could have some freedom to choose within the boundaries because in the end homework does need to be done and it needs to be in the mix but she talked about ways that she could be flexible about what order he did things in and when he did them. So in the end, her take home was broader and about taking the pressure off. But she may well find before long that the fact that he gets to flex a little bit more at home might well impact the star system at school. Our children become defiant when they're looking for wiggle room. In fact, if they're not allowed to manage themselves, they will try to start managing those around them, you and me, their friends and so on. Keeping our minds on our goal of connection and building trust won't mean that we don't care how they do at school, but it will mean that we can work in our areas of influence and not fall into those habits that break connection. We can still have those conversations with them. So that mum went off to find some wiggle room and because it was her realisation that she runs quite a tight ship, she's going to think of some ways to hand him some control and to remember, I manage me, you manage you. I had a great question from a dad about piano lessons. His child doesn't practice and therefore isn't making any progress or much progress. And this has turned into their battleground. And he's aware it's causing disconnect and he asked what he could do. In fact, he asked, is there a consequence that I could use? This is tricky ground because you all have different perspectives on this. And as I say, if I'm talking with a parent, I kind of get into the culture of their family and what works for them. But the first thing I'd really say is if you're going to have that conversation with your child, don't have it in the heat of the moment. Strike while the iron's cold, not 10 minutes before the piano tutor's about to turn up or 10 minutes before you're just off to the lesson. Let them know that you'd like to chat about piano and actually ask them when would they like to do that. And that's them having some management over themselves again. It gives them that feeling of freedom over the issue. And then when you do come to the conversation, ask them how they're feeling about it. If there's anything that they're struggling with about it, what are they enjoying about it? Make it an interested conversation about their piano in general or, you know, whatever instrument is at stake here. And it could be that they're just forgetting to practice or it could be that when they do remember, they haven't left enough time. It could be that they maybe want to take a break from piano for a bit and try it again in six months or a year. So it's a good conversation to have with them because you might find it's not completely black and white. 
But if you take them on at the point where they should have practiced, it will become very black and white in that moment. But just peeling back a bit and going to a moment where you can chat about it calmly, you'll find that there might be other things in the mix. And all in all, you may find that they do want to carry on with the instrument. And so then it's your moment to say, well, we need to work out a way that's going to work for both of us. So in our scenario, I'll show you with you what we used to do. We expected that if they took up a musical instrument, they practiced three times a week. Um, they could do more, but that was our base expectation. And then if the lesson came round and they had practiced, say, two out of three times, then I'm happy to pay for two thirds of that lesson fee. And the remaining third would need to come from them. Now, I realise you might pay termly and you might have to do the maths and so on, but that was the basic principle. And bear in mind, you're having a civil conversation here. They've said they want to carry on and they can listen to the terms that you feel that you can pay for that under. That doesn't have to be conveyed in a sergeant major way. It can just be explained in a gentle way. It's, it's an eye message in its way. I feel I can carry on if it's being met with the responsibility that it deserves. And you may find in the conversation that they have some suggestions that would help them. Um, you can make some offers. You can say, you know, would it help you if I sat with you and encouraged you during your practice? Or would you like to choose a time that you feels right for you? Would you like to diarise that? Would it help you if I reminded you? Or would you rather just be left to get on with it? Do you want me to let you know a couple of days before the lesson and say, oh, just a reminder, I know you're a bit behind with your practice. Would you like me to help you find a, a time that could work for you? Or would you rather I just let it go and we can just talk about the money after the lesson? And if they've got some choice around that, you'll find that they'll come to the conversation with a little bit more freedom. And then you can talk about the fact that privilege and responsibility are two sides of the same coin. They just don't work well without each other. The privilege of having lessons comes with the responsibility of practice. I know that I know that for one parent I was chatting with and it wasn't um, this particular dad. They sat down and they had that conversation with the child and the TV was in the same room as the piano and it turned out that at the point that they wanted to piano practice others wanted to watch the TV and then the piano practice got too late and they got tired. So they did manage to come up with something that could work for everyone. Sometimes it is that simple. Another parent shared that they went away and they had the conversation with the child and it turned out that the child's quite deadline orientated and so she wanted to do her practice thick and fast toward the exam and really put the legwork in towards the exams but coast a little bit more during the rest of the year. So they tried that for a year and, and it worked. That's how she functioned and so long as she picked up her pace toward the end it meant that she enjoyed it during the year and she was getting to do her piano exam. So it was a win-win for them. Having these conversations and striking while the iron's cold and letting them speak into the issue, it enables you to stay connected. It enables you to let them manage themselves, but you do also get to manage you and where you put your dollar. And you may of course find that they just don't want to do piano in the end. And is it worth the fight? And of course, only you can answer that question. Here's a couple more questions that I've had around consequences. One was not wanting to clear the toys up after playing. Quite a common one, that. And another one was that the child didn't want to eat, was very fussy over eating. So let's start with the toys. 
With all these things, it's worth trying outside of the heat of the moment to talk about the value behind it. So in this case, um, it's the value of putting things away or the value of being helpful or the value of looking after your own things. So that lets them know that you're struggling with the clearing up time and you can see whether they're willing to sort out the issue in principle outside the moment. And yes, I would have that conversation from fairly young. And remember I talked about hanging things on a principle. Well, the principle here is about unmet need. If the child has an unmet need, our response is to lean in. And I'll demonstrate that in a minute. In this case, it's your unmet need. The toys all over the floor are definitely not bothering the child. Otherwise, they'd have cleared them up. And if you've got the book Parenting for Life, Unmet Needs is on page 149. But if you haven't, don't worry. I'm going to explain it now. If the parent has an unmet need, it's helpful to use an I message. Let them know what's troubling you in terms of the word I, not in terms of the word you. So a you message would be, you never put the toys away. You're messy. You don't help clear up. You always, you never. They're you messages. I is your key word here. I find it hard to walk across the room when it has toys left around. I like to keep the house clear so we can find things. I prefer to have the toys cleared up before lunch or before we go out so that it's tidy and I just find it more relaxing. Or whatever I is true for you. Now I realise this won't necessarily mobilise your child to run and clear up all the toys. It might, but it's unlikely. The point is, you've modelled that when we're frustrated, we can have a gentle conversation, a gentle confrontation, and we can own the issue. That's the I part. If they engage and you have a good conversation about how toy clearing can work, Marvellous. But the point of the I is about how you make that first point of connection. Again, you've struck while the iron's cold and you want to talk about it. And that principle goes for everything. It's about not arguing, not nagging or having flashpoints with the child every time they leave their stuff around. Here and now it's the toys. One day it'll be rugby boots and ballet shoes, jackets and empty plates and used cups and so on. So from that conversation on, let them fail again. Okay, so you've had the conversation about the toys, the moment has come, you've asked them and let them fail. And that's given them the opportunity to change their approach and clear up. And if nothing's changed, then's the moment for the consequence because you have tried everything else. It's important that we don't just wade in with consequences for every place that they make a choice that we find disappointing. Use consequences when it's a character issue. In this case, it's a repetitive case of not clearing up after themselves. If it's a one-off case of a child forgetting to do something, that's not a character issue. If you put consequences all over their lives, they will feel like landmines and they will begin to feel trapped. So work on one character issue at a time. So now for the consequence. And again, I've had a conversation with a parent and they've worked out what they think will work for them. And that's what I'm going to share. But I am going to share some options in case that doesn't work for you. So I would incline to get a box and let them know that they can keep everything that they put away. And the rest we'll put in this box and we'll pop it on top of the cupboard for a month or for a week, depending on the age of the child. They've got to feel it if it's going to be a consequence. And remember with consequences, they won't like it. 
they're unlikely to say, what a cracking idea. They may, of course, appear to have no reaction at all. That's one thing that might happen. Very unsatisfying for the parent, but quite within their rights. But over time, they will miss their toys. Unless, of course, they've got so many of them, it's unnoticeable, in which case you've got a different problem altogether. So in time, it will have its impact. You don't need to force it. You can keep quite chill about it all. The consequence will do the teaching. Now, the other thing is, and it's more likely, they might have full-on hysteria at this point, in which case this has fast become their unmet need. So what do you do? You lean in. You say things like, I know this is hard for you, darling. You're going to really miss playing with that for a while. Keep your voice gentle. Don't get in the pit. Don't argue back. Don't remind them why you're doing this. Just empathise with words like, I know this is hard for you. I hear you. I've had enough parents try this, not to mention ourselves, to be able to reassure you that the next time it comes to clearing up the toys, the mere sight of the box helps them to remember that they have some big choices to make and they will highly likely clear their toys. So I know for some parents that might sound a bit harsh, but let's just dial back a bit to the point where they're not clearing and you're getting frustrated and that's not making any difference to them. And perhaps as time goes on, you maybe start using some harsh words, you're nagging and over time you'll be causing disconnect and you'll be sending the message, I'm disappointed in you. Or you don't have to listen to me until I get completely wound up and cross and upset. Or you're sending the message, ignore me. Let's face it, I'll be clearing up the toys in the end. The message of a disempowered parent. All damaging, relationship bruising, bad habit forming types of disconnect. But if you do want to look for a consequence and that one feels too harsh for you, you could find something that works for you. Just remember it has to be enforceable and a natural outcome to their poor choice. The parent that I was chatting with was happy to go with the box. So if you were here with me now, I'd talk about it with you and we would work out whether or not that works for you and perhaps give you some other examples. So for example, you could later on give them a chore to do before dinner because you did the clearing away of the toys. And so now I need that time back and um, you can do this chore instead. I mean, I've tried that in the past and I've usually picked a chore that would be less attractive than putting their own things away. As long as it's relevant and enforceable and gentle, it will be a teaching tool. And do go back to podcast seven and look for the power of consequences. You'll find it really helpful. But remember, be careful because consequences really do work. They're effective, so don't overuse them. So another question I had recently was what consequence can you use for your child not wanting to eat? Well, I'm glad someone has asked this because I think there are some things that we just don't get to manage. You can't make a person eat. You can't make a person have a poo or a wee and you can't make a person sleep. But you can manage some of the events around these things. But the actual part itself has to be a sacred thing because it's personal and it's very difficult to enforce. You're then managing them. And I would say food is a battleground not to be drawn into. But the culture around eating is a very fair ground to be drawn into because that's your family culture. So I'm going to give you a great example. And this is actually from the book. And this is from a mum who used a consequence around food but didn't force her child to eat. 
She said our eldest child was two and a half when he started becoming fussy about his food. Mealtimes were beginning to be a battleground. So we asked advice from a friend who was a paediatric doctor. He suggested that we give him a couple of food options at each mealtime and then leave the food there for about 10 minutes and let him know that he has a choice whether to eat it or not. He assured me that after a few meals, as long as I didn't offer him snacks between meals, he would begin to eat again. If I hadn't tried this, I would have become fearful about whether my son was eating enough and mealtimes would have become him versus me. I first tried it one evening and he chose not to eat, so I cleared the meal away after 15 minutes. Throughout the next day, he ate one or two spoonfuls at mealtimes, but very little. I held my nerve and didn't try to talk him into eating. On the third day, he came into our room first thing in the morning and asked for food. I put his usual breakfast out, which he would normally have refused. He wolfed it down and went on to eat three meals that day and from that day on. Looking back, it was a power struggle. And if we hadn't offered him a logical consequence, we would have been bribing and coaxing him for years. So that's a great example of using consequences, not forcing him to eat, but showing him what the culture is around food in your family. And immediately that gets broken if sort of half an hour after it would have been their meal time, you're then offering snacks. And that was the advice of a paediatrician. You're not going to starve your child that way. But what you will do is enable them to work out whether they're hungry and then they will feel in control of their eating and their tummy. And you can remain managing when meal times are and what you think is appropriate for your family. And so it's the same about sleeping. You can't make a child sleep, but you can have boundaries about bedtime and room time. You can't make a child have a poo or a wee, but you can offer them opportunities and then leave them enough time to make that choice. But it is their basic right and the function of their body that will decide whether the moment is right. And the more vexed we get about it in response, the more we're building anxiety into that activity. The last one, I'm going to end on a Christmassy theme because we're coming into that season, aren't we? So here's one from a mum. My kids are talking incessantly about what they'll get for Christmas. The school is promoting it and getting them to write letters and the TV isn't helping in both programme content and adverts. I want to give my children Christmas presents, but it does seem to be all they talk about. So I always ask, as I had a chat with the mum, you know, what have you said? What have you tried? And she said, we've tried talking about not being able to have everything that you want. She said, we've talked to them about giving and who they'd like to give to, but it's very hard to get their minds off their own wish lists. And of course, she's not just concerned about disappointing them on Christmas Day. What's really bothering her is the character issue, the I want thing. She wants to see more grace in her children. But of course, that's so hard, isn't it, when they're small and they're excited about Christmas. So I would say, lean in. Their need is to share their excitement about what they hope to get. They want to share their hopes and dreams. They want to share their desires. Otherwise, it'll be an unmet need. So their need is to be heard, so we lean in. Now, leaning in doesn't mean you're committing to the list. Understanding and agreeing are not the same thing. Just because you listen to them and hear their wants and hopes doesn't mean you have to provide them. Let me give you an example. 
If I was about to close on a house sale and the buyer pulled out and I shared with you that I'm completely thrown and concerned and I just wanted it to go through, if you empathise with me, does that mean you have to buy my house? It doesn't. And I realise that the analogy isn't perfect because it's not a parent-child issue with an expectation involved. But the point is that it's always okay to empathise. You can always lean in. So let's look at what that could sound like. Your child might say, well, we wrote our Christmas list at school today. And you could say, oh, did you? What did you put on yours? And then the child lists off all these wonders that they've seen on the screen. And everything in you, in your instincts, is to say, well, don't get your hopes up. But leaning in would look like, oh, wow, wouldn't that be amazing? Tell me what you love about those things. Or choose one thing that they've told you and, and say, tell me what you love about that. What do you love about the Millennium Falcon Lego kit? Get in their shoes. They're dreamers. They're limitless at this age. It's how they get their big ideas. Their imaginations are critical to their identity and their formative years. Let them dream. Let the agenda for the conversation be to dream and share without fear of reprisal. Remember, this is your practicing ground. These are the reference points they're going to come back to in future years. The question they'll ask themselves is, can I dream big with mum or dad? Or do I get shut down? If your agenda for that conversation is managing their expectations, they won't get the dreams out. And does that mean you have to come up with the Millennium Falcon on Christmas Day? No, it doesn't. So how do you do that? And I would say... Pick a different moment. So in that moment, you're letting them dream and you're letting them share. And perhaps you could share what you would love in your wildest dreams. Go with the flow. I'd love a Mazda MX-5 with a soft top. And I'd like some GHD hair straighteners that don't burn my hair. Oh, and a new Kenwood because mine's getting quite old. And a puppy. <laughs> Enjoy their dreaming with them. And they may well ask you, well, do you think you're likely to get that? You know, do you think dad's going to buy that for you? And you can be honest and say, oh, I don't think so, but I can still want them, can't I? And you're giving them permission to want. And that's okay. You're not going to meet all the expectations, but that's not the time to tell them that. They may not get the six-story doll's house with all its furnishing, but shutting them down doesn't stop them from wanting one. I don't think I'm getting the Mazda MX-5 this Christmas, but it doesn't stop me from wanting one. But, I hear you say, then how do I ensure they're not cataclysmically disappointed on Christmas Day? And the answer would be, because you can have had some of the expectation managing conversations. You can have had conversations about what we give as well as what we get, but just not when they're in full flow of dreaming big dreams. In a quiet moment, you can chat to them about what sorts of things they can expect, how to prioritise on their wish list. In a quiet moment, you can decide as a family or just with one child how to be generous at Christmas time. With our money, perhaps, you know, what they can buy for siblings or for parents or for granny and grandpa, what we can do for people in need. And with our time whether that's um, calling a friend or calling someone abroad or inviting somebody to spend time with you over Christmas Day or walking through town and taking some warm drinks to people on the streets or maybe doing something kind once a week or each day over Christmas time. 
These values are really important and there is time to invest in the principles, but they can be two different conversations. So there are some answers to some questions. I'm sure that you can carry the principles across to other issues too. And do pop back to Consequences, which is podcast seven. And also you might find it interesting to listen to The Power of Choices, which is podcast five. And of course, Empathy is podcast four. And they're all useful for the different issues that we meet head on with our children. So in summary, we're managing ourselves and then you'll end up with a child, in fact, an adult who will manage themselves. We're working out whose unmet need it is. If it's yours, use your eye messages. If it's theirs, lean in. And when using consequences, remember to go for a character issue and you can be gentle with it too. Work out whether there's an enforceable, natural consequence that relates to the poor choice that they've been making. And if you're enjoying the podcast and you want some more stuff on consequences and choices and boundaries and so on and family culture, then do pop to my blog and grab the book Parenting for Life at the special offer price for you. So keep the questions coming. I will try to always respond in person. I'm embarrassingly easy to get hold of. On Instagram, I'm at The Courageous Mama. On my blog, I'm thecourageousmama.com. And in person, I'm thecourageousmama at gmail.com. So as long as you put in The Courageous Mama, spelled M-U-M-M-A, you'll probably get hold of me somehow. I look forward to hearing from you. And I look forward to seeing you again next Tuesday.